CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on the Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. You are watching The Hash on Coindesk TV. I'm Will Foxley, joined today by my lovely co-host, Jen Sinassi, and Adam B. Levine, the co-host of the Markets Daily Podcast, which you should also check out right after you listen to us today. Jen, you got the first story. We're going up north to Canada. At least I guess you're already there. I'm already here. Yeah, I'm bringing you guys with me. Come on up north to Canada where crypto regulation is getting tighter. So regulation is tightening for crypto exchanges and firms are responding. Kraken has filed pre-registration paperwork with the Ontario Securities Commission to become a registered restricted dealer in Canada. Coinbase is in talks to remain in the country, while one of the articles we'll be discussing today says that it looks like Binance is likely to leave. Adam, I'm going to kick this off to you first. What do you make of these tighter regulations all the way up north? We've got the cold weather and now we can't even really interact with crypto the way we want to. Well, I'll uh, leave some of the Canada-specific sort of analysis for you, but my take on it overall is that Canada is largely dependent and drives a lot of its monetary policy by sort of what's going on here in the United States, policy around banking and stuff like that. The banking sector up in Canada is also significantly smaller and much more kind of involved with the state than we typically see down here in the U.S. So it's not surprising to me that they're also on this sort of tightening regime. What seems to be nice, at least about the Canadian rules, though, is that there do appear to be actual rules that they're giving for people to follow. And then you have a choice of, do I want to follow these new rules or do I want to no longer do business in this country? And that's a choice that really I don't think has been given in the U.S. to many of the entities that are here and are trying to kind of do both. So not surprising to see that. Also not surprising to see that some exchanges are willing to double down on that kind of regulatory process. When you're an exchange like Kraken or you're an exchange like Coinbase, like the hoops you're already jumping through as a U.S. regulated entity are probably as onerous, maybe a little bit more onerous than what you're going to get up in Canada. So if your entire business model is built around jumping through all these regulatory hoops that 95% of the companies out there aren't willing to jump through, it does make sense to me that you would continue to jump through them in a market that was similar to that. So that's my read on it. Will, what do you think? To me, it's the Indian landscape, which we also cover on this show quite a bit. There always seems to be shifting dynamics, people going in, people going out, entrepreneurs starting up, entrepreneurs shutting down, because it doesn't seem to be 
that easy to read the scene here. Maybe that's the case with all exchanges or all regulatory landscapes. It's happening in the US as well right now. The thing that was interesting to me was looking at the reporting from Ian Allison. Coinbase looks like they're sticking around. They're pretty committed to Canada. It's a pretty large user base for them, right? Looks like Binance is going back and forth. There was a few spokespeople in there saying that they're going to stay. Then there was a source on background saying that they're going to leave. So that's a little confusing. And CZ, the CEO of Binance, is actually a Canadian citizen. So it'd be interesting to see if they decide to end up leaving. There has been some back and forth history between different provinces in Canada and Binance operating there illegally or under the radar or whatever you want to call it. But there's a few other exchanges in there that are also mentioned. Looks like Deribit's going to wind down its exchange and also blockchain.com. What does this really say? I think to Adam's point, like they have some clear regulations in Canada, which the US is still striving towards. But it also points towards a future where there's not that much crypto activity in Canada. And there used to be a lot, right? Like some of the first crypto stuff really was happening in Toronto. There was like meetup spaces there. A lot of the Ethereum stuff started up happening in Canada first. So it'd be quite sad to see that to depart from Canada. But I think we're gonna have to wait for a little more clarity on the situation first. We'll throw it over to our Canadian correspondent, Jen. (laughs) Yeah, well, I can't give a real analytical or official standpoint here, but I can tell you what it's like to operate in Canada in comparison to what we talk about on the show all the time for Americans. It definitely feels like our financial system is a lot tighter, a lot more regulated. We don't have access to a lot of the same products that you do in the States. Like for example, Cash App isn't something that we have available here. I say this on the show often. If we want to transfer money to each other, we email money in Canada. That sounds absolutely crazy. And there's a lot of things that you guys do at crypto exchanges that I can't do with the exact same exchanges here in Canada. And one of those things is offboarding stablecoins. It is actually kind of difficult to get stablecoins into a bank account here. And it is also difficult to get money from a Canadian bank account to an exchange. You have to jump through a lot of different hoops. When you're opening up a bank account in Canada, they do directly ask you if you have anything to do with crypto, although they cannot tell you what anything to do with crypto means. And so it's a difficult life here if you're trying to operate with crypto. That said, there are ways to legally still do a lot of the things that we're talking about. When we compare what's happening with Canadian regulation to American regulation, I want to point to this part in one of the stories that said the Canadian Securities Administration said last year that it would require certain compliance commitments from unregistered crypto trading platforms. And then they said that they didn't actually have any details and they would publish details in the near future. Sounds very much like some of the American regulators. And then I just want to add this in. I'm not sure, Will, if you said it, but our new regulatory framework up here in Canada is going to require the segregation of assets held in custody, which I think is probably a direct response to what's been going on in the industry lately. Tightened rules for rehypothecation, margin trading, and certain trades involving proprietary tokens or stable coins. Adam, I saw your hand go up, so I'm going to give you the last word here. I think that what we're saying is essentially the same thing across all of us, which is that the world is, in fact, bifurcating right now into two different modes, right? You've got sort of the Western mode, which is not necessarily just restricted to the West, but Western countries that are taking a fairly hardline stance against this. Some are looking at it as an opportunity, but you've got a company like Binance. And Binance, given that they are doing something like 80% of the actual trading volume, it's not like they really care about holding on to that level of market share. For them, the math quickly becomes, what's the market share that we can hold on to without going through a national process at sort of every level where the standards are likely to change because they actually just don't really like us, right? (laughs) 
So I mean, like, once you start looking at the world like that, then it makes a lot of sense who's staying and who's going. Again, it's who's chosen to play the regulatory game and who's choosing to play the other one, the more classic crypto exchange one. Tether, the original collateralized stablecoin that's long cause for concern for crypto market observers, is the big winner so far in the 2023 monetary policy-induced banking crisis. Over the last few years, we've seen that top stablecoin's market share shrink as U.S.-regulated USDC, a seemingly more reliable U.S.-based and regulated dollar-peg stablecoin, has been on the rise. But all that's changed now, after billions of dollars worth of USDC's collateral was caught up in the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. With all those depositors bailed out, including USDC, there's no longer really any concerns about solvency at the second largest stablecoin, and yet the damage seems to have been done. USDC saw some $10 billion worth of outflows as nervous traders swap their tokens for cash, or you guessed it, Tether tokens. <laughs> Based on current numbers, Tether dollars now account for some 60% of the entire stablecoin market. Well, we've been talking about stablecoins over the last few years, and this isn't a headline that I think that we would have expected to see if we were talking you know, at the end of last year. What's your read on what's going on? Yeah, a lot of my thoughts on this are actually driven by Kaiko Research. It's a research team that I brought up on the show a few times. Definitely go check out their newsletter. And they talk about the liquidity in the marketplaces for stablecoins. They talk about stablecoin dynamics, which have certainly shifted over the last six months a lot. Starting off with FTX collapsing in November, we just saw like the liquidity of the general market trend downwards. And then over the last few weeks, what we saw with Signature Bank and also the closure of a few other banks in the crypto sector, leading to a liquidity problem for USDC. You know, there was that weekend, I think two weeks ago now, maybe three weeks ago now, where there was some questions about like, what would USDC do when banks opened on Monday? Were they going to be solvent or not? Were they going to be able to offboard people who wanted to offboard from USDC? Were they going to continue tokenizing dollar reserves? And it turned out that yes, that they had enough banking partnerships, they were able to steer clear and like, keep this thing running. That doesn't mean that you don't have any casualties from the battle though, right? There's going to be some scars. And so far, it seems that people are offboarding from USDC because they probably just don't want the exposure. And we're seeing a few different firms doing that, including some firms like Voyager who are going through Chapter 11. We also had that headline from the FTX Chapter 11 case where they were moving around stable coins. So we didn't quite know if they were trading the stable coin arbitrage trade there or if they were just like offboarding from USDC and minimizing their risk. That being said, the winners here are pretty clear. Tether is a big winner, which of course, like you said, Adam, has long been in the scope for a lot of people. A lot of crypto critics have taken shots at Tether and somehow it survives it. But also TUSD, which is another interesting stablecoin. It's now a top five stablecoin and it's doubled its amount of tokens on Binance because Binance has been saying, hey, maybe use this stablecoin instead of BUSD, which is having its own problems. So really, right now, we're just seeing rotation in stablecoin markets between different products based on how traders and other market participants feel about the security of the investment. Jen, throw it over to you. Yeah, you said kind of what I was going to say. So I think when I look at the stablecoin market, I feel like it's this game of whack-a-mole right now. It's like one stablecoin is on top until something happens that makes it lose its peg. If there's something happens with regulation or something's happened with the centralized point of how the stablecoin operates. And so I just feel like we're going to see during this uncertain time, like different stable coins rise and different stable coins maybe fall and take that first, second or th third space. I wish Zach was on the show because he has brought up the blog post by Arthur Hayes a few times now. And I haven't read it, but from what Zach has told us, it references algorithmic stable coins and the need for algorithmic stable coins to kind of combat the centralized failure that we're seeing with all of these stable coin projects. And so I think that that need is still there, an interesting one. I don't think regulators 
are going to like it. But Will, like you said, I think that these numbers show that after a few weekends ago, a lot of people who held the majority of their treasuries in USDC were looking to diversify and they went to Tether. Adam? It's an interesting reality that we find ourselves in on this because one of the interesting parts about this is that we don't actually know that Tether didn't have a similar problem. We just know that they didn't have to disclose it (laughs) if they did. It's unlikely that they had this particular problem because they basically haven't been in a position to get a U.S. bank account for a long time. And that is really kind of what the dislocation here was. It was, again, about sort of the failure of a series of U.S. banks. And then people who had deposits in those U.S. banks then became imperiled. It's just interesting, right? It's like the downside of the higher regulation burden seems to mostly be a downside when things go wrong both because you have to disclose things as publicly traded companies that you do not if you're just, you know, tethered wherever the heck they're based. And similarly, again, like we just don't know a bunch of these things. So it's not even necessarily the tether is better. It's just that maybe they didn't have the optical failure that sort of occurred here. And, you know, we'll take the best option as we can see it lacking any additional information. It's a weird dynamic. But the one thing I'm pretty certain about is that algorithmic stablecoins to the extent that they've been deployed so far, probably don't present a solution for this. People are always trying to come up with ways to do stable coins that don't have risk implicit in it, and that just is impossible. You get to kind of squeeze the balloon and decide where you want the risk to be. But so far, so far, Tether has stood up better than really anything else. You can make an argument that MakerDAO is another very kind of solid project as far as this goes, but the list is pretty slim, gotta tell you. Yeah, and even to your point, MakerDAO, they have a lot of DAI or a lot of USDC backing DAI in their treasury. It's nearly like 40% at this point. So even these stable coins are built on top of each other. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, the most important conversation in crypto and Web3, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer creators, builders, founders, brand leaders, entrepreneurs, and more. Use code THEHASH to get 15% off your pass. Visit consensus.coindesk.com or check the link in the show notes. And welcome back to The Hash. Okay, let's go over to Ledgerland. Let's talk about the hardware wallet company raising $109 million, according to a new report from Bloomberg. Hardware wallets have been in vogue once again, not really because people like them or think they're shiny, but because FTX exploded and people are wondering, oh, where is my crypto after all? I probably want to keep it on myself (laughs) because yes, you can do that with crypto. It's pretty cool and I highly encourage it. Adam, let's throw the story over to you. Really, I think this just... The money speaks to where people are moving, right? People don't want to keep their digital assets on exchanges anymore. They want to take them to self-custody. And that's why I see with this headline. It's like that shirt that's like, you know, look at the front of the shirt. Then the front of the shirt tells you to look at the back of the shirt. That's basically the thing that we see over and over again here, right? It's not like there's a safe way to store cryptocurrency. Either you're dealing with counterparty risk on one side, or you're dealing with personal custodying risk on the other side. You know, the catchphrase has long been, be your own bank. And that's true, but the downside about it that often goes unspoken is that being your own bank is actually a little bit difficult. And there's a lot of responsibility that we're used to offloading to banks that you kind of have to bear here. So it's a long way of saying that this seems like it makes perfect sense. Again, like with all the collapses of last year, with all of the sudden awareness and intense sort of feeling of what happens when you let counterparty risk really kind of take a big position in your portfolio, 
it absolutely makes sense that a company like this would be able to go and raise a significant amount of money. And this is a significant amount of money, $100 million, $109 million. That's real money during any time. And it's especially real money during a market like this. It's also worth noting that Ledger itself is one of sort of the older players in the space when it comes to this particular game. I believe back in the early days, it was Trezor, and then it was Ledger, and then we had some come out after that. And it's really Trezor and Ledger, you know, Lab of Satoshi that have kind of stuck around. So this seems consistent with the mood of the day. But yeah, always good to remind people that it's not a panacea to use this type of technology, and it all requires significant work. Jen? Yeah, after the collapse of FTX, I think it was the Sunday after, I stand to be corrected, I think the stat was there was the highest single day signups for Ledger wallets as people realized that actually crypto exchanges don't have my crypto as safe as I thought they did. $109 million is crazy. And I want to point to this quote. I kind of chuckled when I read this in the story. Ledger CEO Pascal Gauthier told Bloomberg, suddenly people were like, wow, to leave crypto on an exchange is actually dangerous. Then he said, and 2023 is even better for us because now you can't even leave money at a Swiss bank. What (laughs) a quote. (laughs) Um, I'm curious to see what they're going to do with that $109 million. Like you said, Adam, being your own bank is not easy. There's a lot of responsibility you take in holding your own assets. And so I'm curious to see how they put this $109 million to work. If they're able to solve some of these complications for people, make it a little bit easier for you to be your own bank. You know, at East Denver, there was a lot of talk about account abstraction, you know, abstracting away all of these barriers and pain points and looking at different ways to recover your assets, not just 24 word seed phrases. So I'm curious to see. I'm still waiting for that stackable wallet ledger. And I hope that you send us some. Will. Are you talking about like the iPad wallet or whatever they show? Remember the stackable? Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Very sleek. (laughs) I hope they do that. Like I think their designer was actually the one who invented the iPod or invented the design for the iPod. So hopefully we get some of that. And that's maybe where all the money is going. Hardware is really expensive. According to this article and according to Bloomberg sources, it does look like they might even do some further rounds. At the bottom of the article there, you can see that they're looking at a second and a third round to close. The one thing I do want to point out here is the valuation. It's roughly steady with the $1.4 billion valuation that they had in June of 2021, which is a very different market than we are seeing right now. And that's just sort of an interesting like side note or side quest we can go on here, just talking about valuations. And why would a hardware wallet continue to have a good valuation when we've seen most other companies in the space drop their valuations by upwards of 70% in many cases? A lot of these projects have just outright failed or sputtered, but the hardware wallets they're sticking around. So, you know, maybe the boring stuff, as Adam likes to put it, is really where you should invest your money. Adam, I'll throw it over to you for that thought. Yeah, I don't know if that's where you should invest your money. But I mean, like, <laughs> people take money because money is available to them, right? And companies raise at valuations because that's what investors are willing to give them money at. And so, again, like, the narrative right now, I think, is very much in favor of these types of plays. Personally, with the money, I would like to see a focus on improving some of the hardware experience. Like the, when people talk about account abstraction, most of the time, they're talking about using centralized intermediaries as a way to abstract the need for you to remember things like your seed phrase and stuff like that. But there are entire like message signing workflows that could power entire systems that we haven't really seen. We've seen some kind of nascent efforts around them yet, but we haven't really seen them kind of roll out yet. I have some hopes that we'll get some more innovation coming out of these funds and others. And again, like it's a space that really could benefit from, you know, if anybody's going to solve the, how do you have people hold their own stuff without it being like a dangerous miasma, you know, of problems, like they have the best chance of solving that. I hope to see that. 
Four classic works by iconic pop artist Andy Warhol are reportedly being fractionalized and sold as security tokens, according to the soon-to-launch platform that'll be doing so, which is called Freeport. At least in theory, that means if you've always wanted to own a fraction of a percent of Warhol's double Mickey or his portrait of Marilyn Monroe, this might be your chance. Jen, I'm curious for your thoughts on this one. Has anyone always wanted to own a fractional piece of some iconic art? I see Will nodding his head. So I guess there are people who want this. I read the story and where my mind went was I understand the fractionalized ownership of, I don't know, like a classic car that I get to drive once a year or um, like, I don't know, a vacation home that I get to visit. But a fractional piece of this Andy Warhol, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around. I do understand that there is probably a group of people who love and appreciate art and this is a way for them to become involved in the art. I know near the end of the story, it said that this is going to come with some kind of immersive experience. So coming back to that like NFT and metaverse play, if you own a fractional piece of this art, maybe you're going to get access to some cool Andy Warhol stuff. So for me, this looks kind of like an NFT project with a cool fan club built around it. But the investment piece in this, I'm still having a hard time wrapping my head around if people want this. And I'm sure they do, or maybe at least this project is testing that out. Will, do you want this? I'll take it. I'll take it. I'm wondering what like fractionalized piece you get though. Do you get like a corner of like a neon blob from one of Andy Warhol's pieces or do you get like Marilyn Rose, uh, like her nose there? I don't know. But to me, like when I look at these stories, I do think it sort of makes sense. Like there's a lot of investors who are priced out of the art market and this is a way for them to get some exposure to it. The art market is huge and it's often associated with gold or bullion or even Bitcoin in some ways of thinking about it. People put money into art because they think it's going to be a store of value. And if you don't have enough money to go and buy artwork or buy a lot of it, you can just buy a fractionalized piece of it and then also have some sort of like interaction with it through the immersive experience if that's really your thing. But I think for the most part, just having like the exposure to that market makes sense as an investor. That being said, I don't think I would do this. I think I would just go like support a local artist or something instead. Adam, your thoughts? My read on this is that the reason why people participate in this type of thing is 100% because of the money side of it. It's 100% because they're speculating on the future value being higher than it is today of these specific paintings. And it's worth noting, this isn't like the Andy Warhol Foundation or anything like that, putting these forward. Effectively, these were partially acquired, so probably bought 50%, something like that, interest into it from the private collectors who held these four particular pieces. The price of art is a lot like the price of Bitcoin, right? Like people have theories <laughs> about what it is, but it's not like you can measure it against its earnings or anything like that. Like a lot of what happens in modern markets today for risk assets and also for commodities, but mostly for risk assets, is that reality gets in the way of higher valuations. If you have a company that has earnings and those valuations, those earnings can actually cap the valuation because it shows you the reality of the situation and makes it obvious that it's not worth a thousand times whatever they're making on an annual basis. That doesn't exist with art. All you can really do is look back at the history of what it's sold for and how the price has changed over time. And so in many ways, just like Bitcoin is kind of a cork in you know, monetary policy markets, where as the amount of money goes up, the price of Bitcoin goes up. The same thing is basically true for artwork of this caliber, although it's a much messier relationship. So yeah, it's all speculation as far as I'm concerned. But it's interesting to see them doing it with an actual security token. That's not typically the approach. And from a legal perspective, it does seem like that is a mandatory way to do this. And the SEC was okay with it. So, you know, there's something there. Today, they're okay with it. But tomorrow, who knows? 
Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, no, I'll pick it up from where Adam left off. I think this is definitely like just a piece of exposure to the art market. I do wonder though about like the contract side of this. Like if it's 100% of the artwork is fractionalized, how do you sell it? When do you make a decision to do that? Do you just sell like your allocation there? Is it always going to be fractionalized? Can I fractionalize it many, many times and start rehypothecating art? Like That's a big question, I guess. So there's things I wonder about this, but I do think that we will see more of this in the future. Okay, we'll leave the show there for today. That's Jen Sadassi. I'm Will Foxley. That's Adam B. Levine, host of the Markets Daily podcast. Check us out on the hash for your ears. We're on the Coindesk podcast network. Also check out All About Bitcoin at 3 p.m. Eastern. Want to learn about Bitcoin? Check that out. From all of us at the hash and Coindesk, thanks for watching. See you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.